As always, it is very good to be here with you this morning. Um, Pastor Rollo is not feeling well today, so it's my privilege to be able to uh, preach the word of God to you this morning. So let's, um, I want to pray for, for him, and I know that there's quite a few other people in our church family that aren't feeling well, so let's pray for them, and let's also ask God to help us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much again for this Lord's Day, and I know that Pastor Rollo and the other brothers and sisters who are sick are um, saddened by the fact that they're not here with us today. Uh, I know that they love to be here with your people and to hear your word preached, and so we pray that you would encourage them today and help them to be lifted up uh, in spite of missing these blessings that we get to partake of together. And we do thank you for your word, O Lord, how awesome it is that you feed us with it and that you encourage us by it. And we pray that as it's being read and as it's being preached today, that by your Holy Spirit, that you would cause it to change our affections towards you and to uh, affect our hearts in a way that we would live for you, not just be hearers of the word, but doers as well. Lord, we need your help today. And so we pray that you would do a mighty work among us by your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We're in the time of the year that, uh, that the church universal has historically referred to as Advent. Advent is a season in which leading up to Christmas Day, we can, we can take time to anticipate the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. Christmas has, in many ways, taken on a bit of a secular identity as well. So when I googled the phrase, Christmas is about, here are some of the things that came up. Christmas is about doing a little something extra for someone. Christmas is about family togetherness. Christmas is about forgiveness. Christmas is about exchanging gifts. Christmas is about people changing. There are a lot of answers out there that don't include Jesus in Christmas. It really shouldn't surprise us when so much of the church is even willing to cancel church on Christmas. So taking Christ out of Christmas, if you will. There are others. I mean, I want to give credit to the Christians. There are many articles out there that do give the correct answer. And others do answer that Christmas is about Jesus' birthday, but really, there is more to it than merely a celebration of Jesus' birthday. Sure, we're celebrating Jesus' birthday, even though we can't really be sure that it was on the 25th of December. But in the larger scheme of redemptive history, what we're celebrating in Advent and on Christmas is the Incarnation. The moment that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh for us. We're celebrating the first advent of Christ, and advent means arrival or it means appearance. We're celebrating the fact that the long-awaited Messiah had come, had finally come. On this side of the cross in 2022 A.D., we might not really appreciate the relief of that tension. The theme of the Old Testament history, if you look at it, is in spite of the fact that God called Israel to be his special people, God called Israel to reflect his image before the whole world and to attract the nations to him, Israel over and over again failed to do this. Sometimes they would have good kings leading them. Other times, they would not. At what point in, his, in Israel's history, the, the kingdom divided into two, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. One kingdom was, was hit or miss when it came to being led by righteous kings. And the other kingdom was pretty consistent in having terrible kings. And as the kings went, so the nations went. Even the good kings of Judah failed to eradicate idolatry from the land. 
And as a result, the people would often turn to the false gods of the nations surrounding Israel, which was basically self-destruction. Eventually, the people had gone so wayward for so long that our long-suffering and patient God decided to finally fulfill the curses that were built into the covenant that he made with them through Moses. And he did. He followed through. He kicked them out of the land that he had given them. Nevertheless, God remained faithful. and He preserved a remnant. And after 70 years, he let his people back into the land. And it went okay for a little while. But they still failed to do what God had called for them to do. And about 400 years before Christ, God stopped talking to his people. No more prophets, no more scriptures, just silence. The faithful of God knew that deliverance would eventually come, but they didn't really know the details. They didn't know exactly when. They didn't know who would be their deliverer. They didn't know how they would be delivered. And yet these faithful brothers and sisters continued to pray even in this intertestamental period of God's silence. And 400 years later, here was the answer to their prayers. Christmas. In the womb of the virgin appeared the Messiah. So you see, Christmas isn't ultimately about family. Nothing wrong with including family in your Christmas celebration, but it isn't ultimately about family. Christmas isn't ultimately about giving. It's definitely not about romance. Christmas is about salvation. Christmas is about deliverance. Centuries in the making, salvation had finally come. And this is why when when an old God-fearing man named Simeon saw the baby Jesus in the temple, he said this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Luke chapter 2, verses 29 through 32. Old Simeon, faithful Simeon, could now die in peace. Why? Because the first Christmas had come. Salvation had finally come. Christmas was the answer to their prayers. This morning, we're going to look at a prayer in the Psalms, Psalm 80, and we're going to see that it is a prayer answered by Christmas. That's the title of the sermon, a prayer answered by Christmas. And we're going to examine this prayer from three different angles. Number one, a prayer for deliverance. Number two, a prayer of desperation. And number three, a prayer pointing forward. Let's look at this prayer that has been answered by Christmas together. First, a prayer for deliverance. A prayer for deliverance. This is in verses 1 through 3. Verse 1 says this, follow along. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Give ear, the psalmist writes. That's a really interesting thing to say to a God whom you know hears all things, sees all things, knows all things. God doesn't need to be reminded to hear. But we understand what's being said here in that phrase. Oh, our God and King, please hear us. Please hear us. We're coming to you with a supplication, and we need you to hear. That's a good way to start a prayer. Because what it implies is that God doesn't owe it to the psalmist to hear him. In earthly terms, when you're talking about earthly kings, no king is required to grant an audience to just anyone who asks. And similarly, if if there is any obligation on God to grant audiences to his people, that's only because he promised it and he is a God of his word. 
It's not because the people deserve it. It's not because we deserve an audience with God. If anything, we deserve to be blacklisted. We walk into the imaginary reception room of heaven. We say Ed Romero was here, and we would be immediately rejected for an audience with the king if it were on us. Understand, dear saint, Christian, the incredible grace that comes with this encouragement that we hear in Hebrews 4.16. Hebrews 4.16, which says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We might think, we might be tempted to think that we, in and of ourselves, have a right to ask from God anything at any time and that we deserve to be heard out. But the reality is that the permission that we have to pray to God at any time and the guarantee that we have to receive mercy and find grace is an incomparable gift to us out of God's abundant love. A gift that was purchased for us with a particular price for a particular people. How did he purchase it? Jesus died on the cross for sinners like us so that whoever believes in him is made right with God and being made right with God is therefore given the right to pray to him as his children. We didn't earn that right. It was purchased for us by Christ. So it can behoove us to remind ourselves from time to time of this reality, sometimes by opening our prayers with something like this. Give ear, O shepherd. Give ear. And indeed, that is the one whom the psalmist is asking to give ear. Verse 1. O shepherd of Israel. That's a great picture, shepherd. How kind God is to, to not simply be the master of his people, not simply be the king of his people, though he certainly is those things, but he's the shepherd of his people also. And not only is he the shepherd of his people in general, but he shepherds individual people specifically. That's why David can write and the individual Christian can sing along with him in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What a joy it is to be able to address God as our shepherd, my shepherd. By the way, the New Testament regularly applies this title of shepherd to who? The Lord Jesus Christ. He himself said this in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In our psalm, what the psalmist is doing here when he says, O shepherd of Israel, is he's appearing to God's, I'm sorry, appealing to God's character. He's appealing to God's relationship with Israel. And again, the basis for why the psalmist asks God to hear his prayer is not because he deserves it, not because the people deserve it, but because God has made himself shepherd over them. And as their shepherd, he has committed to caring for them. And we too, Christians, can pray confidently because the one who laid down his life for us is our shepherd and we shall not want. The psalmist continues by addressing God, verse 1, as you who lead Joseph like a flock. It's interesting that, that the psalmist mentions Joseph here in particular because, well, there is no tribe of Joseph, for one, uh, and he's using the word Joseph to represent all of the people of God. There is no tribe of Joseph, uh, instead, his in inheritance was broken up into two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. So it makes us kind of wonder, why does the psalmist mention Joseph here in particular? Or why does God use Joseph as a placeholder for all of the people of God? Well, 
the guesses that the commentators on this verse have are many, and we really don't know for sure, but here are two compelling ideas. First, Joseph is kind of a remnant figure. In, in the story of Joseph, all of his brothers go wayward. They try to kill him or they plan to kill him, but instead they just throw him into a well and they decide to go back for him and to sell him off into slavery. And Joseph is an upright man. So he stands as kind of a remnant figure. So perhaps they're, they are, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They are identifying with that aspect of Joseph. That's a possibility. Second, the possibility is that in Genesis, at the end of Genesis, when Jacob, their father, blesses Joseph, he mentions in that verse that God had been Jacob's shepherd all his life. And what that implicitly asks is for God to be the shepherd for Joseph's children as well. In whatever the case is with why Joseph is used here in this psalm, Joseph stands poetically to represent all of God's people. God leads his people, God leads us like a flock. And the psalmist also appeals to God's kingship, his kingship, when he says in verse 1, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth. This is referring back to the Ark of the Covenant. I remember when Pastor Ola was preaching in 1 Kings, the Ark of the Covenant was this royal chest that God had commanded to be built and to be placed in that room in the tabernacle and in the temple that only the high priest could enter and only once a year, the Holy of Holies. Now the lid of this chest, the Ark of the Covenant, is referred to as the mercy seat. And the mercy seat featured two cherubims facing each other with their wings facing each other. It's called the mercy seat because it was understood to be a picture of God's throne. Of course, God is spirit, so he does not sit, right? He does not sit on a literal throne, but figuratively speaking, God very much sits on the throne. And he is very much, verse 1 says, enthroned upon the cherubim. Not only is he going to hear his people's prayers because he is their shepherd, but he can actually answer their prayers because he is the king of kings himself. The psalmist asks God in verse 1 to shine forth, basically show yourself to us, manifest yourself in the way that you answer our prayer. Verse 2 goes on, notice. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Again, an interesting question comes up. These, these are the names, Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, of some of the tribes of Israel and we really don't know why he chooses these tribes in particular. There are 12 of them, but he chooses these three. Perhaps it was because of their special relation to Joseph in verse 1. Ephraim and Manasseh were Joseph's children, and Benjamin was Joseph's favorite little brother. But another possibility that I think is more plausible, more possible here, and, and actually is lovely, is that in the Exodus, when the people were marching uh, in, towards the promised land or around the promised land, they were marching in formation. They surrounded the tabernacle in their tribes. And in, in this setup, these three tribes of Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh were stationed in a place where they would be often marching behind the tabernacle. And they'd be marching behind, therefore, the mercy seat. And they were accustomed to having God's mercy seat go before them in battle and leading them to victory. And that makes the most sense, I think, with the next phrase, stir up your might and come to save us. Here is the prayer for deliverance that we're talking about. The prayer for deliverance. Pray to God. Pray to their shepherd and their king. Stir up your might and come to save us. We're not certain of the specific historical context of this psalm. Some think that it's referring to the Babylonian captivity. Others think that it's specifically focused on the northern kingdom. We can't really say for sure, but ultimately it doesn't matter. 
It ultimately doesn't matter because this is a song in God's songbook for God's people at all times. Israel was constantly in need of deliverance. And so are we. So are we. In fact, in the pattern of prayer that's laid out for us by Jesus called the Lord's Prayer, one of the things that we are to pray for, pray about regularly, is deliver us from evil. Deliver us. Even now, we are to pray for God to deliver us. So, verse 2, stir up your might and come to save us, was a prayer that certainly was written during a particular historical occasion, but it is a, a prayer that God's people have ever since then prayed and sang regularly. Stir up your might. That's another one of those strange phrases, given the fact that God is never stronger than one moment than he is the other. He's never weaker than he is at any given moment. God is perfectly mighty. And yet God manifests his power in different ways. That's the idea here. God, show us your might. Save us. This prayer is almost certainly referring to deliverance from a human enemy, like Babylon, for example. But it can definitely be prayed and sung by God's people as we face our enemies in our everyday spiritual warfare. Connected to this whole prayer, we see this refrain, is this idea of res restoration. Restore us, verse 3, O God. The psalmist seems to perceive that, that God's people have been under his discipline, and that's why they're suffering. That's why they're losing to the enemy, and that actually makes a lot of sense. Because in Israel's conquest of the promised land, we saw that when God's people believed in God, when they were faithful to God, God gave them victory over their enemies. But when there was any kind of blatant unbelief or sin or idolatry among the people, God would allow their enemies to defeat them. So it makes sense that, that he thinks that they're under discipline of some sort. And therefore, the psalmist asks for restoration in verse 3. Look, verse 3. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. God, if you have turned your face away from us because of our sin, please turn it back to us, O God. Show us your favor once again so that we may be saved. So here the psalmist offers up a prayer for deliverance. Deliverance. And doesn't that resonate with us even to this day? No, we, we don't have a physical human enemy, except in the sense that they make themselves enemies of us. No, our enemies are spiritual. Ephesians 6.12 says this. Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, again... Our enemies in this war that we're fighting are spiritual. But guess what? The enemy influences the people around us. In Ephesians 2.2, Paul describes our former way of living like this. Ephesians 2.2, we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Before we were saved... If, you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, before we were saved, we were following the devil. Before we were saved, it was the devil who was at work in us. And what that means then is that those who continue to not follow Jesus continue to be led instead by Satan. And so therefore, while the deliverance that we so desperately need is against spiritual enemies, a lot of times... The struggles that we're going through have to do with people. There are things constantly happening with people in this world that make us want to cry out, Come, Lord Jesus. When libraries promote drag queens to read books to children but deny Kirk Cameron's request to read his new kid's book to them, we say, Come, Lord Jesus. 
When we read of a local babysitter who was just sentenced to life in prison because she beat to death the five-year-old who was entrusted to her care, we cry out, come, Lord Jesus. When we hear that ever since Roe v. Wade was overturned, that Las Vegas has become a vacation destination for abortion, we cry out, come, Lord Jesus. We could go on and on. So we can relate to this psalmist's begging God for deliverance. And time and time again, God did deliver his people from their enemies. And often, it was after the people repented of their sins. So we can relate to this psalmist's begging for deliverance. But even though their human enemies were being defeated, there was still a need for a greater deliverance. Deliverance from sin, Deliverance from death. And that deliverance had not yet come. So we've seen this prayer from the angle of deliverance. Next, let's see it as number two. A prayer of desperation. A prayer of desperation. Look with me at verse four. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Notice first that phrase, O Lord God of hosts, or Yahweh God of hosts. And by the way, just, just to teach you when we're singing A Mighty Fortress is Our God, when we sing Lord Sabaoth, His name, that's what that means, Lord of hosts. And the Lord of hosts means Lord of armies. Lord of armies. God commands legions of angels from His throne. We said this this last Wednesday night. This, is why this might sound familiar to you if you were there. But we know that God commands at least 72,000 angels. Where'd you get that number from, Ed? Well, when Peter tried to start a fight in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember he cut off somebody's ear, Jesus said to him in Matthew 26:53, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? It's okay, Peter. <laughs> Put your sword away, bud. A legion was a unit of the Roman military which was made up of about 6,000 soldiers. And so doing some basic mathematics, because my wife is a math master, 12 legions would be 72,000 uh, 72, angels. Christ could have called down more than 72,000 angels to rescue him if he wanted to. And it only took one angel to wipe out all the firstborns of Egypt, all right? And so in the song, Only a Holy God, let that enrich the meaning of when we sing, who else commands all the hosts of heaven? Only a holy God. So the psalmist here, in saying, Yahweh of hosts, God of hosts, Lord of hosts, he's appealing to God's power. And he asks this God of hosts in verse 4, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Now, what could make God angry with his people's prayers? It could be prayers that are lifted up from sinful hearts. Psalm 66, verse 18 says this. Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And similarly, in Proverbs 28, 9, it says this. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. And so there is a connection that we find in Scripture about holiness and prayer. No, you're never going to be sinless in this life. That's not what this is talking about. But if you are in unrepentant sin, then God may see your prayer as an abomination and he may not listen to it. Now, ultimately, we know that it's because of the righteousness of Christ that has been put on us. That's why God hears our prayers. But even in the New Testament, on that side of the cross, it associates our personal holiness with our prayers. 1 Timothy 2.8 says this. 1 Timothy 2.8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So when, Peter, when Paul refers to lifting holy hands, he's figuratively talking about the men's personal holiness as opposed to going to God in prayer 
though they're having anger and quarreling with other people. We shouldn't make too much of this. You might think, is God ever hearing my prayers? The remedy to all of this is really just keep killing sin and keep praying. Okay, So don't stress out too much about this. Kill sin and pray. So God can be angry with his people's prayers. But whether God was actually angry or not at their prayers in this situation, we don't really know. But, but we understand how the psalmist might feel that way. He might feel like God's angry with their prayers. That's how it might seem when prayers are seemingly going unanswered. There are other examples in the Psalms of what the psalmist feels when his prayers seem to be going unanswered. Like in Psalm 44, 23. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. It always surprises me to read that in the Word, asking God why he's sleeping. Psalm 74, 1. Why have you rejected us forever, O God? Why does your anger burn against the sheep of your pasture? Psalm 77, 7. Psalm 77, 7. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Honestly, it's probably not theologically right to feel these things. But at least you can know that when you feel them, you're not alone. The psalmists can relate with you when it feels desperate because God seems to be silent. In reality, is there actually any such a thing as an unanswered prayer? Not for God's people. God answers all your prayers. Psalm 69.33 says, For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. God answers all prayers, but sometimes the answer is no. Or not yet. And hence, the author of Revelation 2,000 years ago prayed, Come Lord Jesus, we're still praying at 2,000 years today, and God has been answering not yet yet. But again, we can relate to the desperation that the psalmist feels, right? Where is God? How long is he going to be angry with our prayers? Verse 5 paints this picture of desperation even more for us. Look at verse 5. You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. In other words, the people have been so sorrowful for so long that it's, it's like all they've had to eat and drink have just been their tears of sorrow. Can you relate to that? You cry out to God, you cry out in tears, and it seems like he's not listening. Again, you are not alone in this feeling, even if you are wrong about what God is doing. Verse 6 goes on, look at verse 6. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among us, or themselves. The idea here is that, is that because God's not answering their prayers, or seemingly so, the people have become a laughingstock to their neighbors. And, and their enemies might think, your God is supposedly protecting you? Why is it so easy then to defeat you? People have this attitude about God all the time. If your God is real, they say, why do the good suffer and why do the wicked prosper? Even Christians struggle with that question. Why, God, do you treat your people like this while sinners thrive? Again, it's defective thinking, but it's understandable thinking. The psalmist says again in refrain, Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we might be saved. God, we have been praying and you've been despising our prayers. We have been in tears for so long that people are mocking us. God, please help us. Have you ever felt that way? You ever feel like God is not listening to you? Take heart, dear Christian. He hasn't missed a single word that you have prayed. And he knows what he's doing. And his purposes and his timing are perfect. Let's jump down to verse 16. Verse 16. The psalmist has just appealed to the fact that Israel was the vine that God planted. God, you planted this vine. And he describes it in verse 16 in this way. They have burned it, the vine, with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. 
whatever human enemy the people are facing in this situation, the current situation is that it's like the enemy has burned and cut down the vine that God planted. And it's like the psalmist is saying, are you just going to let that happen? And then the psalmist curses those enemies. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. God, get them. You ever feel like this? Do you ever, do you ever get the sense that the enemy is winning? Do you ever get the feeling that God is letting the enemy win? He's not. But it's, again, understandable how you might feel that way. Our perspective is narrow. The reality is, is that Christ is already victor. Jesus has already won the war. And we already know how the story ends. Jesus wins. But in our weakness, we can sometimes feel like we're losing the fight. Think about this again from the perspective of the old covenant people. They'd cry out for deliverance against some enemy, and in their repentance, God would give them deliverance, but their freedom was never permanent. They always needed rescue. They needed rescuing from Egypt, from Assyria, and then Babylon, and then Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome. When would God finally deliver his people? Where was this servant of Yahweh that they were waiting for? Where was this snake crusher? Where is this heir to David's throne? Would God ever save his people? So combining the first two points, we've seen this prayer as a desperate prayer for deliverance. And let's see next how this is, number three, a prayer pointing forward. A prayer pointing forward. Verses 17 and 18. So as opposed to those who, who the psalmist just cursed to perish at the rebuke of God's face. We read in verse 17. Read with me. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. So the idea of God's uh, hand on being, uh, God's hand being on somebody is that God would strengthen and would protect that person. And the psalmist asks that God would strengthen and protect the man at his right hand. Being at God's right hand is, is a position of favor. So who is the psalmist referring to here? He's probably referring to either the king of the people or he's referring to the people themselves. Kings were considered God's anointed and they were considered God's under shepherds and he appointed kings to lead his people on his behalf. So it could very well be a prayer for the king of Israel. Or the psalmist could be referring to the people of Israel as a whole, personified as a man. God had made Israel strong for himself, and they once again needed his power. They once again needed his protection. We see this phrase, son of man, and, and often in the Old Testament, son of man really is just another way to say man. It's poetic parallelism that we're seeing here. It's just used here for poetic purposes. But... If you are whispering under your breath, this is talking about Jesus. You're absolutely right. Jesus is referred to as the Son of God in the New Testament, yes, but over and over again, his chosen designation for himself is the Son of Man, probably to show that he is the fulfillment of Daniel 7.13, which says this, Daniel 7.13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Daniel was referring to the Messiah, and Jesus is that Messiah. He is the son of man. And furthermore, who is described as being at God's right hand? Jesus. He says of himself in Mark 14, 62 to Pilate, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Peter says of Jesus in Acts 2, 33, that he is exalted at the right hand of God. In Acts 7, Stephen is given a, a vision into heaven as he's being martyred, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So Jesus is the ultimate man at God's right hand. 
Perhaps at the time, the psalmist was talking about Israel, talking about its current king, but what he said was pointing forward to the man of God's right hand, the son of man that God had made strong for himself. And for the deliverance of God's people, his hand would be on the Messiah. His power would be on him, and it would be through him that God's people would be fully and finally delivered. This is the way that Christ has taught us to read the Old Testament. He says in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. The Old Testament scriptures bear witness about Jesus, like in our passage in Psalm 80. With his disciples, when he was walking with them, we read that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's in Luke 24, 27. And over and over again, we see the Gospels and we see the Epistles and we see Revelation showing us how Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The main character of the Bible is Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, he is all over the place in types and shadows. And in the New Testament, he is more fully revealed. So Jesus is the ultimate answer to this psalm. Let's think through that. Let's trace this psalm once again and think through this idea. In this psalm, in verse 1, we cry out to the shepherd of Israel. And whom does the shepherd of Israel send? Himself in the Son, who is the good shepherd. We ask God in verse 2 to stir up his might and come to save us. Well, that's exactly what God did in giving his only son Jesus for us. In Christ, God came to save us. With his power, the son emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. We ask God in verse 3 to restore us. How did he do that? In Christ. Isaiah 53, 6 says this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let me explain that. Here's what happened. Man was initially created good. Satan tempted man, and man sinned against God. And ever since then, people have been born with an inclination to sin against God. And therefore, they've been born alienated from God. There was no way that man was going to restore his relationship with God. There's no way. So God took it upon himself to restore mankind. And in order to restore mankind, the Lord has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live. And then he took our sins willingly on himself and he was judged on the cross as if he were the ones who committed all of our sins. And then God took the perfect life that Jesus lived and put it on everyone who believes in him. And in this way, God has answered the prayer, restore us, O God. But wait, there's more. Because our restoration is not complete. For all those who trust in Jesus Christ, God and the Holy Spirit is making us more like Jesus every day. We had marred the image of God in us. But increasingly, he is making us look more like the perfect image of God, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And yet there's even more. When Christ returns, whoever is dead is going to rise again with imperishable bodies, and those who are alive at the time will be transformed into those imperishable bodies, and thus, at that point, all of God's people will be fully restored as sinless human beings in the presence of our almighty God. We cry out in verse 3, Let your face shine. There is no greater way that God has shined his face upon us than by giving us his only Son. 
And in that shining of his face, so is the prayer answered, let your face shine that we may be saved. Also, it's in Christ that the enemies of God's people will, as verse 16 says, perish at the rebuke of his face. We mentioned earlier that it often feels like we're losing this fight. Christians are getting persecuted. Christians are getting martyred. This last hundred years has seen more martyrdom than any other century combined in Christian history. The way of the devil seems to be prevailing, but Christ is reigning from heaven, and all of his enemies will be put under his feet. And when he returns, he will return to judge, and there will be no such thing as an evil deed going unpunished. You ask the question, how is it that Christians can suffer while unbelievers seem to be flourishing? Well, that suffering and that flourishing are temporary. God will oppose the proud and exalt the humble. And by the way, dear friend, now is the time for you to pick a side. You can either align yourself with this glorious Savior by faith in Him, or you can align with the enemy that will be destroyed by rejecting Christ. I mean, the choice is clear. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will be given eternal life. God's hand is on the man of his right hand, the Son of Man, whom God has made strong for himself. And the result of this is in verse 17. Read with me, verse 17. Then we shall not turn back from you, Give us life, and we will call upon your name. In the context of this old covenant people, this promise, we shall not turn back from you, they broke it over and over again. God spared them from being destroyed, but they did eventually turn their back on him again. They might have called upon his name again for a little while, but then they'd end up turning back to their idols and with Christ. This verse is finally fulfilled. Yes, we sin, Christian, but we will never finally and fully turn our backs from him. He has given us life, and not just life, but abundant and eternal life, and we will forever call upon his name. In Christ, no one will ever snatch us out of God's hand. He will never cast us out. His gifts and his calling are irrevocable. He has given us his spirit as a guarantee. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Christ, we can now honestly pray, we shall not turn back from you. Thanks be to God. Now remember, this psalm is a prayer that was answered by Christmas. For centuries, people longed for the Messiah. They prayed for his deliverance, and as history went on, it seemed less and less likely that God would fulfill his promise of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. You get to the point of Jesus' time where there's no one on David's throne anymore. That's where, the Jesus, the, that's where the Messiah was to come from. The people have been conquered by Rome. They're under a Roman emperor, not a Davidic king. And God hasn't talked to them for 400 years. And then suddenly, in the womb of a virgin, Christmas. The long-awaited Messiah was here the seed of the woman, the king from David's line, the prophet greater than Moses, the servant of Yahweh, the son of man was here. Merry Christmas. Do you see now why that, that first Christmas was so important? It wasn't just about Jesus' birthday. It was about the arrival of the Messiah, the arrival of the salvation that God's people had been craving for centuries. And we're in a similar situation today. The first advent is behind us. But the second advent, the second appearing, the second arrival of Christ is sometime in the future. 
And like the people of old, we don't know when that time is. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like. And there are times when it's difficult to be patient. There are times when it seems like God is not listening. There are times when it feels like we're losing. But take heart. Just as Christmas came at the right time, so will Christ return at just the right time. And when that happens, we will say, Hallelujah. Our King has returned. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. And his people will be vindicated, and his enemies will face judgment, and God himself will wipe away every tear from your eyes. So be steadfast in prayer. Keep praying for deliverance. When we cry out, come Lord Jesus, he may respond not yet, but rest assured, Christians, he will one day say yes. Be steadfast in prayer and be patient. He knows when that time is, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. Be steadfast in prayer, be patient, and be hopeful. Be hopeful. The Savior who ascended to heaven is going to be coming back the same way. And every promise of God that is yet to be fulfilled will be fulfilled. So take heart. Christmas has come, and Christ will come again. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this psalm, for it really is the deepest song of our heart as we groan for your return. Yet we also recognize the amazing beauty of it as having been revealed and fulfilled when you came, when you sent your son to live for us and to die for us. And we ask, O oh Lord, that this joy that we have of Christmas and the joy that we have of Easter would fill us with hope as we long forward to that final day. Come, Lord Jesus. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be steadfast and strong just as you are to us. All of this we ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.